This evening we're going to adventure into untested territory and a much more challenging outline of the structure of the Epistle to Philemon. This is a stage two rocket. You had the first stage drop off last week. That was the simple basic launching vessel. And tonight we're going to soar into the stratosphere with uh, part two. So I'd suggest that you have both sheets of the advanced outline beside you or where you can either put them over top of one another or have them beside one another. It'll be easier for you to follow the detail which I am suggesting is a development or advance upon the basic structure we outlined last week. Now, as you survey the sheets, you'll notice what we pointed out last week, only more briefly, that there is patterned recursion in this epistle. That is, there is a sequence of recursive elements, that is, repeated or symmetrical elements. And you can see it as your eye scans down both of these sheets. Now, you'll also notice something else. You'll notice that much of that recursion comes by way of chiastic mirrors. Now, this word mirror is also related to a word we used last week. Mimesis, which can also mean imitation or identification. And mimesis or mimetic paradigm is part of the structure of the epistle to Philemon. And it is so for theological reasons as well as structural, rhetorical, and literary reasons. These chiasms, as you will note them, are symmetrically positioned. There are seven of them throughout the epistle. If you count up the number of verses that are chiastic, that is, if you total the verses that have a chiasm around them, there are 16 of the 25 verses of this epistle which are chiastically arranged. That means that nearly two-thirds of this epistle, nearly two-thirds of this letter is constructed on the basis of chiastic paradigm. All right, now, we begin with the easy chiastic inclusio at the aperture and closure of the epistle, or the opening and closing You'll notice it in verses 1 to 3, and once again in verses 23 to 25. There are some additional features of that chiastic pattern at the inclusio antipodes of this letter, namely at the opening and closing. We notice that the word grace appears in that opening chiasm, and that word grace reappears in the closing chiasm. That is significant but we'll hold off on talking about that until we come to an examination of the third verse next week. 
All right, now we move then from that opening chiasm to the thanksgiving, which is verse 4, namely Paul's thanks for the prayers that he gives, he thanks for them, and he indicates that he is praying for them in that fourth verse. That thanksgiving or prayer section is immediately followed by another succeeding chiasm. And in verses 5, 6, and 7, you will notice that Paul commends Philemon to the church and for the church in Colossae. All right, now, we move on then to the next unit of the letter. This is the body of the epistle. This is the large central section of the epistle, which extends from verses 8 to 18. And you will notice that I have labeled it in verse 8, exegesis or the indicative. Now, I've done this in order to create a kind of symmetry and even a symmetry of rhyme as we look at the next units. So if you'll glance down to verse 17, you'll notice that I've labeled that paranesis. So exegesis, paranesis, and if you look at the next page, verse 19, paralepsis. Exegesis, paranesis, paralepsis. My argument is that the apostle is following a pattern of indicative, imperative, and ironic uh, restatement. All right, now, let me explain more about what I mean. Going back to verse 8, I've labeled the indicative exegesis for the sake of rhythm. What's happening in the body here, uh, verses 8 through 18, or 8 through 16, I should say, is that Paul uses the indicative mood of the Greek verb. He never once in this section uses an imperative. He uses the indicative mood in order to declare the facts, that is, that is the indicia, <clears throat> the indicative facts of the situation, namely the situation between Philemon and Onesimus. That, of course, is the heart of the body of this epistle. And he does it, <clears throat> he does it in this uh, mood in order to show or underscore the fact of the identification of the love of Christ for Philemon and for Onesimus and mimetically or mirror-like or reciprocally the love of Philemon and Onesimus for the Lord Jesus Christ. He starts out then as he usually does in all of his epistles. He starts out with the indicative mood. He starts out with the statement of the facts of redemption. He starts out with the facts of the doctrine of Christ. He starts out with the facts of the Christian life. He begins his epistles. In fact, you can map Paul's epistles on this basic paradigm, indicative imperative. He begins them in the indicative because he's declaring the facticity of the work of Christ and the work of the Christian church. Now... uh, That relationship then between the indicative and the paranetic, which is the imperative, is basically the relationship between the fact and what the fact obligates you to do. So paranesis here is 
the command, the imperative to live consistent with the fact. In other words, being justified by faith, that is the fact, then walk according to the light of the age to come. There's the imperative. I'm paraphrasing Paul there, but you get the idea. All right, so Paul moves from one part of his letters where he's stating the indicative condition, and then he goes to talk about the imperative demands, the imperative obligations, the commands that that indicative state requires. And in this case, in the Philemon, it is the obligation which results from the love of Christ to Philemon and Onesimus. <clears throat> Having been brought in to the mirror relationship of the love of Christ, <clears throat> Paul says to <clears throat> Philemon, then do this, do that, <clears throat> do the other thing. He uses the imperative mood to <clears throat> underscore the obligations of that indicative state. Now, the indicative and imperative are a mimetic paradigm in themselves. They are a mirror. You do not have in Paul's theology an indicative without an imperative, nor do you have in Paul's theology an imperative without an indicative. The imperative flows out of the indicative. He virtually always places it second in his epistles. The indicative is the groundwork of the imperative, it is because of what has happened to you, in fact, in Christ, that you are obli obligated to live on the basis of the commands of Christ. <clears throat> Indicative, imperative, mirror, symmetry. They go together. It's like love and marriage, horse and carriage. You can't separate them in Paul's epistles. All right. So <clears throat> this broad exegesis paranesis bracket is actually a mirror of integrity in and of itself. <clears throat> So, inside that mirror, there are additional chiasms. We noticed last week that there are two chiasms between verses 9 and 10. They are anaphoric, or chiasms of anaphora, meaning that they begin with the initial same word. Notice verse 9, I appeal to you. Verse 10, I appeal to you. That's an anaphora. In other words, a section begins with the same identical Greek word, and then the chiasm follows. <clears throat> Those are mimetic indicative chiasms. Verse 9 is a mimetic indicative chiasm. There's a mirror between Paul and Christ Jesus, as you can see. There's a mirror between aged or old and prisoner, which is Paul, and it pivots on the time sequence of the now era. The same is true in verse 10. There's a mirror relationship between Paul and his child Onesimus at the beginning of that chiasm and his imprisonment, Paul's imprisonment with Onesimus at the end of that chiasm. And it's sandwiched on the pivot point of how Onesimus indeed became Paul's child. He was begotten by him in that imprisonment. All right, now, the, the, the nice, neat here, nice, neat uh, pattern here is made explicit by that Greek word malone, which appears in verse 9 and verse 16, which means essentially more than. 
So the body, or the exegetical body, the indicative body of this epistle is marked off. It's bracketed by a delimiter, the Greek term more than in verse 9 and 16. Now, last week we did not notice the chiasm in the paranetic section, that is the section of the imperative, verses 17 and 18. And you'll see it laid out there on your sheet this evening. Now, this is a chiasm of personal relationships. You'll notice that the personal pronouns are the pattern of the chiastic frame. It begins with a what's called a protasis in Greek. That is, it begins with an if clause. And you'll notice in verse 17 and 18, these are double protasis, protases. That is, there's an if at the beginning of this chiasm in verse 17, and there's an if at, at the continuation of it in verse 18. <clears throat> an if clause is followed by a then clause. Protasis apotasis in the Greek grammar. Okay? If, then. And Paul says, if, then accept him. If, then charge me. The then is not in the text in your, new, in your English translation, but it is implied in this grammatical style. So, we have a chiasm in this paranetic or imperative section of the letter, a chiasm which is composed of double protasis apotasis clauses. And the, uh, the way the chiasm unfolds is in terms of the personal pronouns. <clears throat> me, you, him, me, he, you, me. And you'll notice that's a mimetic paradigm. The me uh, at the top parallel to the me at the bottom, the you at the top parallel to the you towards the bottom, the him with the he, and me at the pivot point, Paul being the pivot point of the chiasm. Now, you might ask me why I place parentheses around the first you and the, uh, the second he. I put parentheses around them because the pronoun is in the verb. It does not occur as a standalone pronoun in the Greek text, but it is in the tense of the verb. It is the subject of the verb, and therefore it is a part of the sequence of the pronomial uh, outline. <clears throat> All right. Um, <clears throat> that brings us to the parallepsis. Now, the parallepsis solves the problem of breaking off the epistle at verse 18 and having no place in the structural outline for verses 19 through 21. Why do I say this? The indicative and imperative units are clearly marked. In verse 17, for the first time in this epistle, we find Paul using the imperative mood of the verb. He never uses the imperative mood until he reaches verse 17. Something has happened in verse 17. He's changing his gait. He's changing his pace. He's changing his grammar. That means he's moved in transition to a new unit of the, of the letter. All right, so <clears throat> the indicative imperative fits very nicely. Well, what do we do about verses 19 to 21? <clears throat> we can get to the succeeding <clears throat> chiasm, the chiasm that precedes the second supplication, 
verses 19 to 21, but it doesn't seem to fit any particular pattern of rhetorical analysis, any particular pattern of exegetical or paranetical analysis, indicative, imperative, or some other thing. And yet, there are three whole verses in which he elaborates another chiastic pattern. We need a label. We need a label for what he's doing. We have a label for the indicative mood, verses 8 to 16. We have a label for the imperative mood, verses 17 and 18. What happens in verses 19 to 21? Well, in Greek and Roman rhetoric, there is a technique called parallepsis. Parallepsis is a kind of ironic twist. It is an instance in which the speaker or the writer will emphasize something by seeming to pass it over. In other words, he'll say, well, I could have mentioned so-and-so, but I'm going to go on. That's a parallepsis. It's It's an ironic twist of actually saying what you're passing over saying and bringing it to the attention of your reader or your audience. Now, how does Paul do this? You'll notice in verse 19, he says, I am writing you and I will repay you lest I should mention to you that you owe me even your own self as well. In other words, I could mention that you owe your own self to me me alone, but I'm going to move on to I will repay you. You get the idea. This is a, shall we say, masterful way of drawing attention to the relationship between the speaker and his audience or the speaker and a part of his audience. That's exactly what Paul is doing here to Philemon. He is underscoring one of the most important relationships between himself and Philemon, namely the fact that Philemon owes his own self to the Apostle Paul. Now, I could harp on that for a while, Paul says, but I won't. So in passing, parallepsis, ironic drawing Philemon into this mutual participation in the love of Christ Jesus by way of indirectly and ironically seeming to pass it by and yet at the same time mentioning it as he goes. All right, that brings us then to verse uh, 21. And you'll notice that there is a chiasm before the supplication or the prayer section in verse 22, even as we had a chiasm after the prayer section in verse 4 up above. So we have a chiasm before the prayer section down below, the symmetry of the chiasms which balance the prayer units of this epistle here, Paul commending the commendation of Paul to Philemon before he asks for prayers on his behalf. And that leaves us with the closure chiasm at the very end. All right, now, as we stand back from a fairly complex analysis here, we realize not only that we have a balanced paradigm, symmetrical elements, elements that reciprocate, but we also have mimetic elements, elements which portray the mimesis of reflecting 
the pattern of the life of Christ in the life of those who are patterned or reflected in this epistle. This is extremely important for Paul's argument. It is extremely important for the issue which is before uh, the, the characters here and before the congregation which is in Philemon's house at Colossae. Why? Why is it important? Because in that mirror relationship, in that mimetic relationship, and Christo-mimetically, in Christ, mimetically, all things have become new. All relationships have become new. Something new is occurring. Very different from the world outside those relationships, outside that mimesis, outside that mirror, outside that symmetrical reflection. The symmetrical reflection of Christ in Paul and the mirror of Paul reflected in Christ. It is absolutely essential to his argument. It is absolutely essential to the reality of his life in Christ. It is absolutely essential to the, to the reality of the life of Philemon and Onesimus in that in Christ. It is absolutely essential to the church at Colossae and their mimesis and Christo. So, this is not harebrained theorizing on my part. This is reading the text on the basis of the repetitive patterns that the apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has placed in the text. They are there for our instruction. They are there for our edification. They are there for our mimetic participation. Because that's the ultimate issue here. The ultimate issue is whether we mirror Christ as he offers to mirror himself in and through us. All right, now, as I said at the beginning, uh, this is the second stage rocket. So I may have left you on Earth as I soared out into the stratosphere. Do you have any questions? Different. The, you know, the structure that deals with the prayers. Now the prayers are. Yes, the Thanksgiving. The Thanksgiving section in four is Paul's prayers for them. The supplication section in twenty-two is their prayers for him. Okay. So before or after the first prayer section, there is a kaya. Okay. Okay. And preceding the second prayer section is a kayak. So, succession, procession. Succeeding, proceeding. And each place there's a commendation. In the first chiasm, there's a commendation of Philemon to the church. In the second chiasm, there's a commendation of Paul to Philemon. Followed by, <clears throat> beginning with prayer, then commendation, commendation, then followed by prayer. 
chiasm that you're seeing before the last sets of prayers of 22. You're looking at the chiasm that's to our far, uh, to our far right. right? From 19 to 21. I fall right to you in the right. Fresh my heart in Christ. I fall right to you. Correct. That's what we're looking at. Correct. 19 to 21. Okay. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> now, if it's easier for you to stick with the basic structure, that's fine. <clears throat> but the advanced structure provides a lot more concrete detail and also represents a more detailed analysis of the Greek text as Paul expands it. <clears throat> All right, now, <clears throat> let's take a look then at the aperture or the opening <clears throat> of this epistle, which is the first three verses, that opening chiasm, though this evening we're not going to move much beyond the first verse. <clears throat> let's begin by keeping our finger in Philemon and turning back to the book of Acts. Chapter 15. And verse 23. Acts 15, 23. And when somebody has it, please read it out for us. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers... To the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. All right, now notice, this is a letter that is sent by the, the, the apostles and elders after the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. Council of Jerusalem is the first Presbyterian General Assembly. Because that is the basis in the New Testament for which we get our idea as Presbyterians of a assembly of the elders and ministers, or in this case, apostles of the church for deliberating and deciding upon a controverted or discussed issue. So, what do they do after they've produced their decisions? They write a letter. Notice what is contained in this letter. The format of this letter in Acts 15.23 is very similar to the format of the ancient Greco-Roman letter. It is a very abbreviated format, but nonetheless, this text shows you the kinds of things that would be placed at the beginning of a letter in the Greco-Roman world of the first century. What are they? Well, the first thing you'll notice in that 23rd verse of Acts 15 is the names of the senders. Not personal names, but the categories. The apostles and brothers who are elders. So the senders are first. According to the ancient letter paradigm, that is standard. The sender comes first. Second, in, this, in the 23rd verse, 
what comes next. The recipients are next to the brethren in Antioch, etc. And finally, what comes last? The salutation or the greetings. All right, so if you were reading a secular Greek letter from the first century, secular Roman letter from the first century, in general, you would find this pattern represented. The letter would begin with the sender and, and continue with the address to the recipients and then the word greetings or salutations. Now, let's take a look at Philemon 1. What does Paul do with his letter format? Now, you'll obviously note from the numbering that Paul has more elements than that standard ancient letter format of the Greco-Roman world. In other words, Paul is not a slave to that Greco-Roman letter format. There are similarities between what Paul does and what that ancient letter format does, but Paul does something more. He does something unique, and we want to think about that. We want to think about why Paul has more opening or aperture elements in his letter format, in his epistles, than the ancient Greco-Roman format. <clears throat> All right, so how does he begin <clears throat> in Philemon verse 1? He starts with what? His name, the name of the sender, okay? That corresponds to number one up above. The name of the sender begins the letter. And then, Cheryl? He says a prisoner for Christ Jesus. So what would we call that word prisoner? What would we call that word prisoner? Anyone? Designation? Designation? Title, yes, a title. In this case, prisoner. Okay, we'll come back to that later. Next. No. Yes. Now, what label do you place upon the use of Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus here? True, but he doesn't say that. True, but he doesn't say that. Owner. Closer, okay? Closer, all right? And the reason owner is closer is because of the grammar here. It is a genitive of possession. We'll come to that a little bit later. But nonetheless, let's agree on authorization here. Authorization because of the relationship between the sender and the Lord Jesus Christ, the authorizer. Now, this is usual with Paul. He will say his name as the sender. He will give a title. In this case, it's prisoner. It's the only place where he uses this title. Okay, that's unique, so we'll come back to that. And then 
he says virtually in every letter of Christ Jesus. The authorizer. The authorizer of his right to write. Pun intended. Okay. This is, this is very important in terms of sequence. You'll notice there's nothing like this in the ancient Greco-Roman letter format. Paul has done something more with the letter format that he uses or that he develops. In fact, there are some scholars who think that Paul is completely original. I agree with that. All right, now, the next element. Somebody had already said it. Timothy, and what are we going to label him? Co-sender. Very good. The co-sender, if there is any. In this case, we do have one. In other words, one who equally sends or sends along with Paul. We'll ask in a moment about his role in this letter, but for the time being, we get the outline of the format. All right, now the next element. Not Timothy's title, per se. No. Leave out our brother. (laughs) Next element. Yeah, recipients. And how do you know? What preposition tells you that? Two. How many times do you see it? First of all, two, Philemon. Second of all, two, Apphia. Third of all, two, Archippus. Get the accent on the second syllable. Let's all say it together. Archippus. There you go. It's like Hippus. Archippus. Okay. And is that is that the end of it? No. To the church. We have four. Dative's of reception. Okay, that's the dative case in Greek, meaning the preposition add, preposition to plus the object. So there are four recipients of this letter. We once again want to come back to that later, but we notice that he uses the dative case, the preposition to, to indicate the recipients at every point. There he is in parallel with the more simple uh, secular letter form up above. The second element in that uh, form is the fifth element in Paul's form. He has embellished his own format much greater, uh, much more elaborately than the typical secular letter format. And finally, the last element in Paul's letter. The greetings or salutation which appears in... uh, In verse 3. Okay. Paul has varied the contemporary secular letter style. What has he done with it? He's expanded it twice over with other elements or categories. Why has he done this? 
First of all, he's personalizing his letter by expanding the introductory or opening format. These apertures, these little opening windows into Paul's letters are setting a tone. They're setting a tone of relationship and reciprocity, mimesis again, between the apostle and his audience, between the apostle and his reader, between the apostle and those who are going to benefit from his epistles. Not only does he personalize his openings, but he enriches this format of writing a letter by placing language in there which has an emotional or emotive power. What words in this opening would you say have an emotive power? Good. Jesus Christ is one. What else? That's another one. Good. What else? What did he call Timothy? What did he call Apphia? Brother? Yes? What does he call Apphia? Sister. Okay, see, this is language of emotional attachment. Language which emotes a sense of warmth in response. He calls me sister, sister in Christ. He calls me brother, brother in Christ. See, this is an emotive element in Paul's writing. He's drawing them into the emotion of what it means to be related or joined and Christo, joined to Christ in union. All right, now, he also talks about the church in the house of Philemon. This language is the language of familiarity. Familiarity. It's familial language. So is brother and sister. But this use of the word church here at the beginning is to draw attention to the fact that the body of Christ is the family of God. And that resonates then with his readers as a warm identification of connection and joint relationship. Now, there's one more thing to note. Paul introduces or weaves into these opening uh, lines of his letters, terms of endearment. Terms of endearment. And you will notice that in the first verse where he uses the word beloved. This is not the only place in this epistle where he will use it, but having used it here is almost as if he is foreshadowing how he is going to use it subsequently in this epistle. So he begins on this high note of affection, endearing himself to Philemon, who has endeared himself to Paul. And uh, uses that at the outset in order to draw Philemon into the warmth of affection that he has for him and mimetically 
Philemon has for Paul. All right. Paul has not simply decided to, well, let's change everything in the way we write letters. Paul is using the elements of the letter format for his pastoral purposes, for his theological purposes, for his affectionate purposes. Because when Paul writes this way, he's writing, as it were, of his heart. And that, again, is another major theme of this letter. The passion of the apostle shows through, even at the beginning of this letter, not merely from the word beloved, not merely from the familial terms, not merely from the collegial terms, not merely from the tone which he sets, but from the very fact that he is earnestly, eagerly, passionately involved in the life of Philemon, the people in his home, and the church that also meets in his house. Any questions about that? As you study Paul's letter openings, and I'll mention his name again, Jeff Weimer, whom we had here years ago to give us some lectures on 1 Thessalonians. Jeff Weimer has written some excellent articles on Paul's letter openings. In fact, has a book on the subject. Very good piece of work. Uh, This is a study in itself, looking at every opening or aperture to Paul's 13 letters and beginning to ask yourself, why, 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 why does he do this? You see, there is more than just reading over these words. There is just more than saying, oh, Paul has said hello. Now let's get on to it. Let's get to verse 4. Let's get to the meat of this thing. No, you go too fast. You miss too much. There's a lot there in what he has done in elaborating this letter format for personal reasons, pastoral reasons, theological reasons, ecclesiastical reasons, all of the above, enriching our understanding not only of his relationship to the churches, his relationship to the individuals to whom he writes, but enriching our understanding of Christ's relation to individuals and to the church, and ultimately to us. Any questions? Yes, Pete. Any ideas why he calls Archippus a fellow soaker? No, I don't, unless there's some suggestion that uh, Archippus... had had some military experience, although most commentators dismiss that. They think it's a metaphor referring to the spiritual warfare a la Ephesians 6. However, um, he does tie that into another word in this opening, and uh, I'll suggest next week uh, more detail why there's a possibility for that, and that is the word peace in verse 3. So did the military image also conjure the image of peace and the Pax Romana, for instance? We're reaching there, but it's an interesting stab. All right, we'll pause there.
and uh, take our refreshments, and we'll come back and resume with the rest of the outline. All right, we've come to that uh, section which indicates uh, comment on the following. And I'll begin by giving Abigail a chance to tell us what these words mean. Let's uh, start with superscription and break it apart for me, Abigail. Okay. I'm guessing it's like the beginning of the letter. What's the Latin preposition super mean? Okay, let's try adscription. Okay, what's the Latin preposition ad mean? Two. Oh, your name's not Abigail. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not that what were you gonna what were you gonna say, Donna? I would think it would mean powerful. You're kind of thinking of supernatural, but the basic meaning of super means above or over. All right, so the superscription is that which would be written over the letter. And you'll notice the one that's proposing this outline for the first three verses is saying that the superscription includes verse 1, and then the adscription, what's, and the ad, it's the Latin preposition for Two, which would mean the recipients, the adscription includes verse 2, or is, is verse 2. And the salutation is verse 3. Is that right? Yeah. Is, is the adscription verse 2? It starts with verse 1, doesn't it? The adscription begins with verse 1b. We could say the superscription is 1a, that is the first part of the first verse, but the first time he says two in Latin would be odd, odd scripto, the writer, those to whom he is writing. Okay, So this outline is not accurate. <laughs> it is not as accurate as Paul's outline itself. So if we were going to use this outline of superscription, adscription, salutation, we would say superscription is 1A, adscription is 1B through 2, and salutation is 3. Yes, Kate? Well, I would say whoever did the verses did it wrong. Paul did not write in verses. That, that is that is true, but the verses are there, and the person that was using this outline, the person who was using this outline was saying, okay, well, I'm going to say Paul's got superscription in one, adscription in two, because that's a neat little outline, right? Look, look, It looks fine, until you realize that, no, he begins the adscription in part of verse one. So, uh, it, 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 okay, if you want to move that the... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, the, the, the Nestle Alon text of the Greek New Testament changes versification. I'll recommend you to the German editorial board. <laughs> Actually, these verses began in the middle, in the middle ages. That's, uh, that's the first time that versification was inserted into a Bible. It's a medieval period. All right. Now, Let's take a look at a grammatical peculiarity of this aperture. And by aperture now, I mean the entire first three verses. <clears throat> a grammatical peculiarity, something 
that is quite unusual. As you read through those three verses, what do you not see? You do not see a verb. That is correct. This is a verbless, long sentence. That is, a very long sentence without a verb. Now, this is typical. It's typical of the secular ancient letter format, and Paul follows that custom by also using verbless uh, aperture introductions. Now, the significance of why this is done is even more important for our purposes. The verbless clause is typical of the author. In other words, it's the way the original author writes his opening to the letter. Paul, in following that custom, Paul is also affirming emphatically that he is the author of his letters. This verbless clause is typical of authorship. And in my opinion, Paul's use of this epistolary convention confirms his authorship of the letter to Philemon. And in fact, where he uses this in his other letters confirms his authorship of those letters. Now, it is an indirect confirmation. With respect to Philemon, we have virtually no contest. That is, nobody's arguing about Paul not being the author of Philemon. We mentioned uh, F.C. Barr in the 19th century, the last major figure to refute or refuse to acknowledge Paul as the author. But this would be one of the ways to answer F.C. Barr or anyone else who would think that Paul is not the author of this, but some uh, somebody pretending to be Paul, a pseudo-Paul. That, of course, is what many New Testament scholars believe is true of the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. That's a pseudo-Paul. Paul didn't write those. That's a false Paul. That's a person pretending to be Paul. Well, we can't accept that because that implicitly places a liar as a writer of two book, three books of the New Testament. All right, well, uh, to get back on the track here, this verbless clause tends to confirm the Pauline authorship of this letter. Now, let's look at his self-designation. How does he designate himself in this opening? Calls himself a prisoner. What does he usually call himself in the opening of his letters? Sometimes, but not usually. Apostle. Yes, the common, most common designation is apostle. So why does he not call himself an apostle here? If that's the usual way he introduces himself, why doesn't he say, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus to Philemon? Pardon? Let's, let me take Ben first. Ben? It didn't seem necessary. Didn't seem necessary. Bob? Sorry, Bob? He's making a relationship between him and Philemon. Very good. <clears throat> this is an intentional change in the way he designates himself. Why does he do it? 
He is not coming to Philemon on the basis of his apostolic authority. He is not coming to Philemon on the basis of his apostolic office. That is all true. He has the office. He has the authority. He doesn't use it. He does not exploit it. He calls himself a prisoner in order to draw Philemon to himself, to pull Philemon into the circle of his own weakness, the circle of his own bondage, the circle of his own imprisonment. It is not a sympathy-gaining device. It's true. It is a true fact. But it is a use of a true fact in order to gain Philemon's ear and his heart. Now, notice also what he says here. He says that he belongs to Christ Jesus. He belongs to Christ Jesus, a genitive of possession. What's the force of a genitive of possession? Mr. Sanborn. The force is, is that you're owned by that thing. Um, Give me another word. They are, well, they are your Lord, they are your... Give me another word. It comes right out of the grammar. What kind of grammatical construction do we have here? Agenda. Of? Of possession. So they are? So therefore? They are? I don't know. They are? Possessed by Christ. Okay. He is possessed by Christ. <clears throat> right? He is not possessed by Roman's imperium. <clears throat> he is not a prisoner of Rome. He is not possessed by Caesar. He is not a prisoner or possession of Caesar. He is the possession of Christ Jesus in prison. He belongs to Christ. Christ belongs to him. He's possessed by Christ. He possesses Christ. This is an emphatic reflection of his mimetic relationship, his participation in Christo by possession. I belong to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ belongs to me. Even in this prison, I belong to him. Caesar can't take me away from that possession. The Roman Empire can't take me away from that possession. Nothing on earth can take me away from that possession. The gates of hell will not prevail against that possession. Now, friends in Christ... This is precisely the kind of thinking that you need for this day in 2015. You do not know what is on the horizon for you or for the Christian church. But you may be facing a turning point in the history of Western Christianity. You may be. We may be. And this is the kind of language that will be essential to fortifying us in such a time. Will you go into the future confident that belonging to the Lord Jesus, nothing on heaven and earth can take you away from that bond, even though you be imprisoned, 
even though you be bound in chains, or worse. The apostle speaks to you out of oppression and persecution. He speaks to you 2,000 years later and gives you the words of encouragement for your soul and your body in such a time. All right, now, a scholar has said that Timothy is listed second as co-sender here because he was Paul's scribe for this epistle. What does it mean that he's Paul's scribe? He writes, writes. He writes it. He writes it. So this, this scholar says that Timothy is second because he writes the letter. True? Not necessarily. No. Why? I was just going to say, other places where he does have scribes, he doesn't put them... I'm not talking about other places. Prove it from this letter. Look at a text. He's our brother. Look at a text. Verse 19. Read it out. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. Well, there's the end of that scholar's opinion, right? What's the matter? He couldn't read the Bible? He couldn't read the text? He couldn't read the rest of the chapter? <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand this. Timothy is not Paul's scribe. Paul writes this with his own hand. He even says so. Right there in the epistle. What are you talking about? Timothy was a scribe. Okay, all of which means that just because you have a Ph.D., you don't always have the right answers. <clears throat> Why, Timothy? Why, Timothy? Obvious reason, first of all. He's with Paul, exactly. He's in prison with Paul, isn't he? So, he greets with Timothy because he's also in prison with him. Second reason. Timothy has been going, is converted by Paul and has been traveling with him. Where to? Well, Ephesus. Where and where, what, what might Ephesus have to do with this letter? Very good, you're right. But what does Ephesus have to do with this letter? If Timothy was with Paul in Ephesus... Who came to Ephesus to hear Paul? Philemon. Philemon. Philemon probably heard Paul in Ephesus while he and Timothy were there for how many years? Two and a, two or three. Three or three years. Probably three. One text says three. <clears throat> okay. Now, this is a little bit of speculation, but nonetheless, the fact that Paul does include Timothy here is more than incidental that he's with me here in prison. <clears throat> he knows you too like I know you. <clears throat> and he knows you because you met him and me in Ephesus when he first heard the gospel. 
And out of that hearing of Paul in Ephesus, what happened to Philemon? He became a Christian. He was converted to Christianity. And he goes back to Colossae, his hometown, and a church is started there by Epaphras. All right, so there is a bond of connection, personal relational bond of connection between uh, Timothy and Philemon. Bond between Paul and Philemon, bond between Timothy and Philemon. Who is beloved? True, but in the text, who is beloved? Philemon. And who else will be called beloved? Jesus. Jesus. Not in this text, but he is. Verse 16. I heard it. Somebody say it louder. Onesimus is called beloved in verse 16. It's the very same Greek word. All right. So he uses a term with respect to Philemon that he's also going to use later on in the letter with respect to Onesimus. He's foreshadowing the use of this term. It's not that he's not genuinely beloved of Paul. In Christ, that is Philemon, but he wants to underscore that at the outset because he's also going to recapitulate it when it comes to Onesimus at the towards the end of the letter. All right, now let's yes, go ahead, Kay. A good question and, and very good observation. Her question was, do I think Timothy was imprisoned or was he just with Paul in prison? There's a good answer on either side of this. It is conceivable that because of his relationship with Paul, he was arrested as well, or at least arrested when they got to Rome. But the other suggestion is that he could come and go to minister to Paul And so he wasn't actually incarcerated. Now, keep in mind, we mentioned this some time ago, Paul's not in a dungeon. He's kind of under house arrest. And the reason we know this is that people can come and go and talk to him. And if you're in a dungeon, you aren't going to get many people coming and going and talking to you. He can write letters. He can get the letters, the prison epistles. He can get them written and sent out. Doesn't seem to be hindered in getting parchment or getting writing implements or, you know, somebody feeding him or taking care of him in that regard. So possible that Timothy was there to to help him. Obviously, later on, we're going to see that Onesimus is there uh, to help him. Perhaps he was also incarcerated, though, a little stronger stronger, uh, case with respect to Onesimus. So, okay, the question is good, but no one can settle it. Finally, those are the options. I tend to lean towards the option of Timothy coming and going. And and so taking care of him or, or ministering to him in that way, but not being incarcerated or restricted uh, as Paul is. Paul couldn't go out of the house arrest. But the people that could come and go were able to uh, to, to leave the, the place where he was kept. All right. Now, let's let's try to uh, sum up 
uh, by way of uh, mimetic parallels here. Paul's in prison, suffering, because regardless of house arrest, he's still suffering in this imprisonment. He's being humiliated and shamed by being in prison, by being restricted from his uh, liberty and freedom. And he's being pressed down into the reality of dying to himself. That is, he's powerless to do anything to change his condition. This is a mimetic paradigm. That is, Paul is a mirror of Christ. In Christ, he's reflecting Christ's suffering. Christ's humiliation and shame. Christ's death unto himself. Paul's glory are his chains. Christ's glory is his cross. The element of shame and humiliation is parallel, symmetrical, mimetic in both instances. Therefore, the use of the term prisoner here draws Paul into the mirror of Christ's own humiliation and shame. What about Onesimus? Onesimus is in this prison too. He is suffering. He is being humiliated and shamed by being in prison with Paul. In that regard, he is dying to himself. But Onesimus is mimetically in Christ. He, too, is being conformed to Christ's suffering, to Christ's humiliation and shame, to Christ's death to himself. But Philemon? Philemon is not in prison. Philemon is not suffering. Philemon is not in humiliation and shame. And he's not being pressed down with death unto himself because of suffering, persecution, or humiliation. Does that mean there is no mimetic pattern with respect to Philemon? Does that mean that there is no mirror or reflection or imitation in Philemon's case? No, that is precisely what this letter will unfold. Philemon in Christ and Christo is being pressed down into Christ's suffering. He is being conformed unto Christ's humiliation and shame. He is being drawn into death unto himself. In Christ and Christo, the mimesis enfolds all three, not just Paul and Onesimus, but Paul, Onesimus, and Philemon. Paul features this relation so as to draw out the treasure of union with Christ, even in the fellowship of his suffering, the fellowship of Christ's suffering, which Paul mentions in his epistles. This letter is Paul's invitation to Philemon 
to realize that he is mirrored in Paul, to whom he owes his very life, as he is mirrored in Onesimus, whom he is to accept as his beloved brother, because he's in Christ, Paul's in Christ, Onesimus is in Christ, they're all in Christ, and they are a reciprocal mimetic mirror of one another. The power of the possessive. The power of that possessive in belonging to Christ Jesus envelops Paul, it envelops Philemon, it envelops Onesimus, and belonging to Jesus Christ means filling up the measure of his suffering, a la Colossians 1.24. Filling up the mimetic measure of Christ's suffering. This letter will draw Philemon into that drama as he is drawn into the fellowship of Paul and Onesimus and Christo. Finally, Philemon is the beloved brother of Paul, verse 1, in Christ. Onesimus is the beloved brother of Paul, verse 16, in Christ. What is equal in the same one is equal in one another. Onesimus is the beloved brother of Philemon, verse 16, in Christ. Philemon, brother of Paul, Onesimus, brother of Paul, Onesimus, beloved brother of Philemon. In Christ, the master-slave relationship, In Christ, the Philemon-Onesimus relationship takes on a new perspective. Something new is happening in this epistle with respect to masters and slaves. And we will unfold that new thing as we make our way through this letter. Any questions? And we will proceed next time with verses 2 and 3 of this opening and perhaps a little further. Shall we close in prayer this evening? the deep spiritual riches of even these opening words of Paul's letter, Lord, cause us to wonder with amazement at your own wonderful grace in Christo. How we bless you and you've taken into your possession those who are unworthy and even had fitted them to the pattern of the worthiness of your dear son, even to the point of suffering and shame and humiliation. 
It is, of course, not something that we seek or desire, Lord, as if we would be seeking a martyr complex. But, O Lord, we pray that it is something we would not shun were it thrust upon us. And that in that day, if it comes upon us, you would join us so wonderfully to Christ, so intimately mirroring him that we would be willing to suffer for Christ's sake. Now we pray, O Lord, that you will bless the suffering brothers and sisters of Christ in this day and that their sweet union with the Lord Jesus may encourage them and lift up their hearts and cause them to look to that land where there is no shame nor any persecution or humiliation, nor is there any more death. For Christ lives, and in that land gives eternal life, not eternal death. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.